Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. House Republicans failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Why three Republicans refused to vote along party lines. Should New York keep its status as a sanctuary city? Mayor Eric Adams weighs in. Hear his answer as the city grapples with a migrant crisis. A federal appeals court strikes down former President Trump's claim to immunity in the January 6th case. More on the decision allowing prosecution and Trump's vow to appeal. The results for the Nevada primaries are in. Nikki Haley coming in second on the GOP side, despite being the only major candidate on the ballot. Who voters picked instead? Who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines? Sweden ending its investigation and handing evidence over to another country. What the next step is in the, in the probe. Communities across Asia gear up for the Lunar New Year. What's this year's Chinese zodiac animal has in store for 2024? This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, a federal appeals court ruled Monday that refusing to wear a mask is not an expression of free speech. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals issued the ruling in two similar cases. Involving people who refused to wear masks at school board meetings during the COVID-19 pandemic. The cases stem from lawsuits against officials in Freehold and Cranford, New Jersey. The plaintiffs said they were punished for not wearing masks. The court sent one of the cases back to a lower court. In the other, it ruled that the plaintiff didn't prove she was retaliated against. The appeals court said that not wearing a mask isn't protected by the Constitution during a health emergency. They compared it to other situations where you can't disobey the law to make a point, like not paying taxes or not wearing a motorcycle helmet. The plaintiffs plan to ask the Supreme Court to hear the case. House Republicans failed yesterday in their effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He's been accused of refusing to enforce multiple immigration laws. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on the vote. The chamber erupted with Democratic applause when House Speaker Mike Johnson announced the results. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. The vote took place after two hours of hard-hitting floor debate. Congressman Chip Roy accused Mayorkas of blatantly ignoring the laws of the United States. He has done so with reckless abandon. He has done so in a way that has led directly to the death of American citizens. Congresswoman Laurel Lee says the head of an executive branch agency can't be allowed to pursue policies that violate the law and endanger Americans. Secretary Mayorkas has willfully and deliberately refused to uphold the laws of the United States. He has violated his oath of office and he has breached the public trust. House Democrats united against the effort, calling the proceedings a sham. Congressman James McGovern says impeachment is a solemn act. It's not something that ought to get thrown around lightly or invoked when you disagree with someone or you don't like their policies. Congressman Glenn Ivey says impeachment should be reserved for high crimes and misdemeanors. But House Republicans have decided to abuse that responsibility for a cheap political stunt. 
Three Republicans joined Democrats in voting against the impeachment. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene reacting. I'm sure they'll hear from their constituents. Uh, I'm sure they're probably hearing from them already. Congressman Mike Gallagher was one of the holdouts. He wrote on X that creating a new lower standard for impeachment, one without any clear limiting principle, wouldn't secure the border or hold President Biden accountable. It would only further pry open the Pandora's box of perpetual impeachment. Another holdout was Congressman Ken Buck. I think the principle is very clear that uh, Mayorkas did not commit a high crime or misdemeanor. And Congressman Tom McClintock, who says the impeachment of Mayorkas would set a dangerous precedent. We can expect it to be leveled against every conservative Supreme Court justice, uh, every future Republican president and cabinet member the moment the Democrats take control, and there'll be nobody there to stop them because we will have been complicit. House Majority Leader Stephen Scalise was absent from the vote due to undergoing treatment for blood cancer. The House is likely to revisit plans to impeach Mayorkas at a later date. But even if Republicans are able to impeach him, he's not expected to be convicted in a Senate trial where Republican senators have been cool to the effort. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And joining us live to discuss is Andrew Arthur, resident fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Andrew, welcome. How likely is it that we're looking at a delayed impeachment rather than a failed impeachment? And do you think that the articles of impeachment have enough merit to warrant an impeachment? Yeah, and it's very important to understand why exactly this impeachment is going on. It's not simply because uh, Republican members don't agree with his policies. The Supreme Court has forestalled any avenue to force the Biden administration to actually enforce the immigration laws at the southwest border except for two options one impeaching the secretary or two shutting down the government to force the administration to actually enforce the laws so uh that's the reason why this impeachment is happening i'll note that uh blake moore uh who is a member of leadership he's vice chair of the gop conference actually voted against uh mayor the uh, mr mayorkas's impeachment and he did that because that enables him to then bring it up again. If uh, Leader Scalise comes back uh, to the chamber and uh, Congressman Moore votes in favor of the impeachment, then the articles of impeachment will be accepted, Mayorkas would be impeached and it would go over to the Senate. And so from a legal standpoint, what do you make of the Democrats' argument that there is nothing that Mayorkas has done to warrant uh, high crimes or misdemeanors charges? So that is the standard uh, that is set in the Constitution. But it's important to note, again, the Supreme Court has forestalled any effort that anybody else can take to force the Biden administration to actually comply with Congress's own rules of the border. This is a dilemma that the Supreme Court has set up. And because it's you know, blocked all those other avenues, state lawsuits and you know, attempts to force uh, the administration to actually you know, detain uh, illegal migrants, which is what the law requires. This is the only option left. I agree that this is, you know, a pretty, pretty strong medicine. And I agree with uh, Representative McClintock that it would definitely set uh, a new standard. But there's no guarantee that Democratic members, if they gain control of the House, wouldn't simply impeach Supreme Court justices or uh, cabinet secretaries anyway. 
So, you know, it's uh, this remains an open question. It's probably going that the impeachment is probably going to pass at some point, and then we'll be having this conversation again. And looking at the Senate's proposed border deal, uh, President Biden says that Trump's opposition to it uh, is essentially or could stop him from securing the border. From a legal standpoint, once again, how accurate do you think that is? Former President Trump's objections to this bill uh, are that it, it actually wouldn't do much to, to secure the border. President Biden already has the authorities that he needs to secure the border. And, you know, all you need to do is look at President Trump, President Obama, both of whom actually did secure the border. Uh, this bill basically accepts or legalizes, uh, you know, those 5,000 illegal entries per day that, you know, it includes. That's 1.825 million illegal entries per year. To, you know, just take you back a little bit between 2017 and 2020 in that 14 year period, we averaged, you know, just over about 1300 uh, apprehensions a day. And even at the worst of that, we averaged about 2300 uh, apprehensions a day. This would more than double the number of apprehensions that we've had in the past before, you know, what President Biden says is that critical authority would kick in. This bill has now moved beyond you know, what's good border policy or even whether this is a good bill to a, a political argument on the part of President Biden that Donald Trump is now to blame for what's going on at the southwest border. And I don't really think there's a lot of validity to that. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your contributions, Andrew Arthur. Thank you so much for having me. Should New York City keep its status as a sanctuary city? Mayor Eric Adams says yes but suggests exemptions should be made in some instances. On Tuesday, Adams said that being a sanctuary city is part of the origin of all New Yorkers. He explained that everyone in the city came from some level of immigration. But he added that illegal immigrants who abuse the city's welcoming nature need to be dealt with on a federal level. Just a day earlier on Monday, Adams said that illegal immigrants who are found guilty of crimes should be deported. Many have been calling to overturn the Big Apple's status as a sanctuary city in recent days. That's after a mob of illegal immigrants allegedly attacked two police officers in Times Square. Denver, meanwhile, reportedly started ejecting illegal immigrants from its city shelters. In January, Denver announced it would reinstate a policy limiting the days immigrants can stay in state-provided rooms. That's to deal with the growing number of people arriving in the city. Multiple officials have been advocating for more federal aid in recent weeks. That includes the mayor of Denver and both of Colorado's Democratic U.S. Senators. Fox News now reports that 800 immigrant families will be removed from city shelters. 140 were removed on Monday. The rest will be asked to leave over the next few weeks. And in Panama, migrants keep crossing a jungle area called the Darien Gap. The crossing is extremely difficult to, to cross and dangerous. Many are robbed, raped, or killed trying to get to the other side of the jungle. New numbers show that almost 40,000 migrants have crossed the gap so far this year. That's according to Panama's National Migration Service. Last year, around 25,000 crossed the Darien Gap during January. And recently, we reported that New York City is giving prepaid debit cards to illegal immigrants. Families sheltering in hotels could get about $350 per month to spend on food and baby products. The city says the pilot program will save the city about $7 million each year. Entities Chris Beers asked people in New York City what they think about it. 
Mayor Eric Adams is going to give out about $51 million in food credit cards to illegal immigrants staying at hotels in New York. What do you think about that? Okay, my uh, word to Mr. Adams, I know it's a vote-getting um, issue for him, right? But with what we have in New York, the situation after COVID and the present situation, right, it's, um, it's questionable why the mayor would do something like that. I think that's great. I think that's great. I think it's a great initiative. I think it's something that should be done. I think it should have been done. Um, I think it's uh, making them feel welcomed and, uh, you know, I think it's a great idea. I don't think it's that much money, $1,000, um, to help somebody get a leg up. I think a small amount of money can do a lot um, as a single parent. Uh, I think I'm an immigrant. I'd love to see a credit card for myself, but that's obviously not how it works. And when people talk about, you know, free handouts, America is a land of opportunity. What America provides is opportunity, right? It shouldn't be providing you with free things. It should be providing you with the ability to create something of yourself. My family left Mexico because of security reasons. We couldn't build a home the way that we wanted to because Mexico was unsafe. So we came here to the U.S. We built a wonderful family. We took advantage of the opportunity by building something of ourselves, not through handouts. New York City Mayor Eric Adams defended the controversial plan yesterday. Adams stated that the city is not giving people American Express cards. The program would give more food money to illegal immigrants than to low-income residents. Coming up, former President Trump endorsed by the International Union of Police Associations. The group calls his support for law enforcement unmatched. Up next, three U.S. presidents to meet in New York City next month. How former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama gets involved in President Biden's re-election campaign. appeals court has ruled former President Trump can face trial for his alleged role in the January 6th breach at the Capitol. The unanimous decision to reject Trump's claim to presidential immunity is paused until Monday to give time for appeal. Trump argues he acted in his official capacity to protect election integrity and should be shielded from criminal liability. NCD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the ruling. A three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously rejected Trump's claim to presidential immunity Tuesday. The panel wrote it cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. The court wrote former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant and concluded any executive immunity that may have protected him as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. Trump's attorneys argue the Constitution Impeachment Judgment Clause indicates Congress held responsibility for trying a president, and that criminal prosecution could only take place after Congress had impeached and convicted a president. The appeals court disagreed, writing the framers knew how to explicitly grant criminal immunity in the Constitution, as they did to legislators in the Speech or Debate Clause, yet they chose not to include a similar provision granting immunity to the president. The judges ruled impeachments cannot be equivalent to criminal prosecutions, rejecting a double jeopardy argument. The court also found Trump is not immune from criminal prosecution under the separation of powers clause. The panel gave Trump until Monday to file an emergency stay request with the Supreme Court. Trump's team vowed to appeal. He can go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court or can ask the entire appellate court to reconsider the ruling. Trump on Truth Social after the decision posted, a president must have full immunity in order to properly function. If the High Court declines to take up the appeal, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin would be able to restart trial proceedings. 
If the court accepts Trump's request, any timetable it sets will decide any further delays. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For more analysis of Trump's immunity case, I spoke with Paul Kalmanar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Paul, explain the U.S. appeals court's ruling here. Well, it wasn't the U.S. Supreme Court. It was the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. This was the case that was argued several weeks ago. I was there in the front row sitting behind Donald Trump on whether or not he should have immunity from prosecution because he alleges that what he did while he was president was part of his uh, presidential duties and therefore he should be immune from prosecution. Uh, so the three-judge court today uh, ruled against him and said, no, you don't have immunity uh, because uh, what you had did, assuming that what you did is illegal, and that's an important thing, they just assumed for the sake of argument that the prosecutor's charges were valid. So they were acting in that hypothetical arena uh, and so they ruled against him on immunity. Uh, that doesn't mean he'll, you know, he'll be convicted at trial if it go, gets that far. Paul, what could happen to Trump? The presidential election is just a few months away. Yeah, well, right now the big issue is what's the next step? Right now that trial against Trump is on hold. Uh, and and uh, the court said, we're going to keep it on hold, but you, Trump, can go to the Supreme Court, but you got to file your petition by February 12th, in five days. He will do that. And then Jack Smith will oppose it, saying, no, Your Honor, don't look at this case. The, the D.C. Circuit ruled against him. Don't waste your time with it. And then Trump will file a reply. And then the Supreme Court will decide whether or not they're going to hear the case. If they decide, yes, this is important, we got to hear it, then the question is how long it will be till they decide the case. Well, they've got to decide probably within uh, several weeks after that. They could go as late as June. And was the court's decision surprising? Was this rejection expected? Yeah, this was expected. Uh, there were three judges. Like I said, I was there in the courtroom when it was argued uh, four weeks ago. Uh, and, and two of the judges were Biden appointees. One was a uh, President George H.W. Bush appointee. Uh, but from the questions, it was clear that they were going to rule against him, and they did in a unanimous opinion. Uh, uh, so the issue is whether there's any legal arguments that the Trump can make on appeal. And I think there are some that he can, can make. I mean, the court said uh, about the issue that when Trump said, well, look, future presidents will be chilled from uh, taking action because they might think that as soon as they get out of office, they're going to be prosecuted by their successor. And the court said, no, nah, that's unlikely to happen. But it can happen, and that, that's an important issue that I think the court kind of swept under the rug. Trump is expected to appeal. Tell us, what could that look like? What are Trump's options? Yeah, well, uh, his uh, only one option that he's going to exercise is to file a, a petition for certiorari, which means that he's petitioning the Supreme Court to hear the case. The Supreme Court doesn't have to hear it. They can say, no, we don't want to hear it. You have to have four votes out of the nine justices to say, yes, let's hear the case. Paul, thank you so much for your insight and for joining us.
suffered another setback in her presidential campaign. The former UN ambassador came in second at the Nevada Republican primary, in which she was the only major candidate. Meanwhile, President Biden won the state's Democratic primary, his second victory after New Hampshire. Nevada on Tuesday held its first Republican primary in years. Noticeably missing from the ballot, former president and current GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. He's standing instead in the Republican caucuses on Thursday. In an unusual move, Nevada is hosting both contests, though only the caucuses will provide the winner with delegates. Candidates must choose to participate in either the primary or the caucuses, but registered voters can vote in both if they chose to. This could explain why Nikki Haley finished the contest behind the ballot option none of these candidates. Trump is expected to win the caucuses on Thursday. This will take him a step closer to the presidential nomination. Meanwhile, President Biden also faced little competition in the Democratic primary. He won in a landslide vote over author Marianne Williamson and Congressman Dean Phillips, the latter's name not appearing on the Nevada ballot at all. Haley has been focusing her attention on the upcoming South Carolina primary, where she will once again go head-to-head -head with Trump. But the results in Nevada could put a further damper on her campaign. The International Union of Police Associations is endorsing former President Trump. The group praised Trump's unmatched support for law enforcement while criticizing Democrats for being soft on crime. IUPA President Sam Cabral said yesterday Trump's policies and actions were focused on improving safety in communities, whereas some Democratic policies that support defunding police and reduce accountability for criminal behavior have resulted in rampant crime. Trump supporters now hope America's largest police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, will soon follow with its own endorsement. The FOP and the National Association of Police Officers both endorsed Trump in 2020. And three U.S. presidents are set to speak in New York City next month. President Biden is planning to host a campaign fundraiser alongside former presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Obama confirmed on the news on X, writing, Folks, I'll be in New York City on March 28th to support President Biden. Clinton and Biden both commented under the post, confirming their attendance. They also shared this event link. On the site, one individual could win the chance to meet the three presidents and get photos with them. It's not clear yet at which venue the event will take place. Coming up, French President Emmanuel Macron paying tribute to the victims of Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack on Israel. What he says about an international rise in anti-Semitism. Germany is seeing yet another day of transportation strikes. Lufthansa ground staff say they'll extend the walkout if their demands aren't met, as 100,000 passengers are forced to reschedule flights. We'll have the details soon when we return. Joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates from the financial world. Don, what do you have for us today? All right, so just a few things I want to talk about, uh, including a, a team-up of the biggest sports broadcasters and J.P. Morgan Chase's expansion plan. Okay, so first about the team-up. Uh, Disney's ESPN, Fox Corporation, and Warner Brothers Discovery is uniting to create a super platform, if you will. Uh, and this is going to house their sports assets under a single streaming roof. And potentially this is a seismic and 
once probably unthinkable move uh, and it's probably a very big deal here and the service is going to offer consumers access to a host of sporting events and that's including the NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL and others, NASCAR as well, UFC, uh, golf if you're into that and each company will own one third of the service. Now how much is all this going to cost? Uh, so according to sources uh, cited by uh, CNBC, it's going to cost uh, over $40 a month. Uh, but details are pretty, uh, uh, not a lot right now. The companies didn't specify what it's going to be called yet. Uh, they didn't say uh, much about it, but they did announce that two, uh, yesterday that they, they're going to launch the new service in the fall period. Uh, and the company's executives are banking on that the team up uh, can uh, give them advantage when it comes to taking on bigger rivals. For example, Netflix, a huge streaming platform, or other tech companies as well, like Amazon and Apple. They said that the new offering could increase choice for fans, and it could give those who have cut the cord to traditional TV uh, an alternative to a sports-centric service. Now, Don, you also spoke about, you mentioned the JP Morgan expansion plan. What's that about? Okay, so JP Morgan Chase seems like about to embark on an aggressive expansion that announced a multi-billion dollar uh, effort to grow its physical footprint in the U.S. So that includes opening more than 500 new Chase branches uh, over the next three years. And on top of that, they're going to hire about 3,500 3, 3, new employees. Um, it, expands, it, it plans to expand its footprints in cities like Boston, Minneapolis, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and it seems like the firm plans to enter several new markets here, uh, including uh, some rural markets, uh, which uh, probably has very few traditional uh, banking options. And it's also planning to renovate roughly 1,700 existing locations. All right, great. Thanks for the update, Don. Thank you. Thank you, Don. And the United States has accused Russia on Tuesday of firing at least nine North Korean-supplied missiles at Ukraine. While Moscow labeled Washington a direct accomplice in the downing of a Russian military transport plane last month. Today, we possess irrefutable evidence that a Patriot phased array tracking radar for intercept on target surface-to-air missile was used to carry out the strike, which leaves no doubt that Washington is a direct accomplice in this crime as well. We have seen the news reports of a strike hitting a bakery in Russia-occupied eastern Ukraine with at least 28 killed on February 3. While we are unable to independently verify that information, the United States laments all civilian casualties and expresses its sincerest condolences to the families of any civilians killed. The Russian and U.S. officials traded the accusations at a U.N. Security Council meeting on Ukraine. The sit-down was requested by Moscow. Russia has stepped up ties with North Korea and other countries hostile to the U.S. since the start of the war with Ukraine, relations that are a source of concern to the West. A Russian Air Force plane fell from the skies on January 24th. Russia said all 74 people on board were killed. That includes 65 captured Ukrainian soldiers who were reportedly on their way to be swapped for Russian prisoners of war. Russia blames Ukraine for downing the plane and says it has evidence that American-made Patriot missiles were used. Ukraine's military could be shaken up. The president of Ukraine recently confirmed with an Italian broadcaster that he may replace a series of state leaders, including his top military commander. 
For more insight, I spoke with Victoria Coates, Vice President of Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Victoria, in the midst of the Ukraine-Russia war, um, Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky says that he's thinking about removing his military commander-in-chief. Now, how could removing his top general change things in terms of the war? Well, David, good to be with you. I mean, these are obviously concerning reports out of Ukraine because, you know, everyone in America wants this war to go well. They want the Ukrainians to be successful. Now, you know, removing generals uh, in, in wartime is, is common. Abraham Lincoln did it. Uh, but unfortunately, it looks like there might be some, some disruption and some chaos in Kiev right now. Uh, and I would just hope very much that the United States is, is staying very closely lashed up with the the Zelensky administration and can provide uh, some assistance in, in this kind of transition. It's, now, it's unclear who will replace the general, but do you think there's a, do you think there's a, the potential firing has any political motivation behind it? Well, it's it's hard for us to see from Washington. Um, certainly, the the general question has been very popular, uh, and you know you could you could see that in some ways as a correlation, not in terms of his character, but to the popularity of Yevgeny Prigozhin on the Russian side, which can create political tension uh, with with the top of of the regime or administration in the case of the Ukrainians. So, you know, there, there could be some political motivation, uh, but, you know, really, again, the most concerning thing for me is that this is kind of turning into a soap opera. You know, if you need to replace a commander, you should do it quickly and decisively with a strong replacement, uh, obviously ready to go. And, you know, that unfortunately now this is, this is turning into more of a personality-driven story. And Ukraine is reportedly dealing with ammunition and personal shortages. Do you think, uh, how would the military accept uh, a change of command during this time? Well, it is, it is very difficult, um, you know, and so that's, you know, we're looking at the two-year anniversary of the invasion coming actually two weeks from today. So this has been going on for a lot longer than anyone expected, and the shortages of both people and, and ammunition were in many ways inevitable. Uh, given given the duration of the conflict, so I think you know you, there have to be strong concerns about morale. There have to be strong concerns about you know how how the Ukrainians might respond to any Russian counteroffensive this coming spring. Now, as you mentioned, the war is coming up to its two-year anniversary. Is this becoming an endless war? And if so, how could the U.S. Uh, or what can the U.S. do, if if anything, to bring it to a just end? Well, unfortunately, I think the time to do that was probably about a year and a half ago, uh, when it was clear it wasn't a three-day war, that the Ukrainians were going to be a much stronger adversary to the Russians than many had assumed. And, you know, the, the Biden administration could have made a decision at that point to either push the Ukrainians into a negotiation based on the fact that they had been more successful or decided to decisively, in conjuncture with our major NATO allies, to have helped the Ukrainians win the war. Unfortunately, we really didn't see that happen. Uh, we apparently missed an opportunity for negotiations in late March of 22, and then the assistance both the United States and the EU have been providing since, while substantial, has not been enough to get the Ukrainians over the finish line. And, and there seems to be a growing acceptance that this is gonna grind to a kind of a stalemate, which is, is not an a optimal uh, 
endpoint for either the United States or, or Ukraine. Victoria Coates, VP of Foreign Policy at Heritage, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Staying in Europe, we have some short headlines from Germany, Switzerland and other countries. Swedish prosecutors today said they will drop their investigation into the explosions on the Nord Stream gas pipelines. They found that Swedish jurisdiction does not apply and the investigation should be closed. Sweden is now handing evidence over to German investigators. A Kremlin spokesperson said today that Russia was denied access to information about the investigation in the past. Moscow will now watch how Germany conducts the investigation and make decisions accordingly. Okay, French President Emmanuel Macron today paid tribute to the victims of the October 7th terrorist attacks by Hamas. 42 French and Franco-Israeli citizens died during the attack on Israel. Macron attended a somber ceremony in the heart of Paris. He vowed to fight anti-Semitism in all its forms in France and abroad. Anti-Semitic violence has increased in many countries after the October 7th attacks. And in International investigation into Albanian Mafia. Police in Ecuador and Spain have arrested at least 30 people in simultaneous operations. Prosecutors from both countries carried out almost 60 raids related to alleged money laundering and drug trafficking. The money seized is worth around half a million dollars. Prosecutors also found firearms, seized property and vehicles. And Swedish University lost research samples that had been collected over multiple decades. The Guardian reports that the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm stored samples in tanks cooled with liquid nitrogen. The tanks operate at minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. The liquid nitrogen supply was interrupted around Christmas, leading to the destruction of samples from multiple institutions. The Karolinska Institute is a medical university and the location of the Nobel Assembly, which selects the winners for the Nobel Prize in physiology or medicine. Germans enduring yet another day of transportation strikes. Ground staff at Lufthansa walked out at major airports today to raise pressure and wage talks. The airline said some 100,000 passengers will be affected by the walkout. The strike is due to run for more than 24 hours. The Verdi Union has targeted Frankfurt and Munich airports. Lufthansa said only 10 to 20 percent of flights will now operate at those locations. Berlin, Hamburg and Dusseldorf have also seen strike action. Verdi wants a wage, of, a wage rise of over 12 percent for around 25,000 workers. The union also wants a one-time payment of over $3,000 to offset inflation. Today's strike is the latest to hit Germany in recent months. A wave of industrial action has disrupted air travel, railways and public transport. Coming up, communities across Asia gear up for the Lunar New Year. A look at what this year's Chinese zodiac animal has in store for 2024. London's Science Museum has a collection of mechanical clocks displayed together in the UK for the first time. After the break, we take a look at the treasures in the exhibit. Communities across Asia are preparing to welcome the Lunar New Year on February 10th. This year marks the Year of the Dragon in the Chinese Zodiac. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. Lunar New Year is a time to gather with family and friends. Each year in the Chinese zodiac is believed to bear the characteristics of its namesake animal. 
2024 is the year of the dragon. The mythical creature is a symbol of good luck, strength, health, and prosperity. The year of 2024 is the year of the dragon. In the Chinese world, the dragon is a symbol of auspiciousness. In the past, emperors were represented by the dragon. It is a symbol of protection and auspiciousness. The festivities include visiting temples and burning sticks of incense for traditional deities and bring good fortune for the months ahead. Visitors at this underwater-themed temple in northern Taiwan are already excited. The dragon represents the figure of everything, the most respected. In Taiwan, we say that the dragon soars high in the sky. It is a symbol of auspiciousness. This is why, in the past, emperors wore robes with dragons on them. This is how the dragon is known. The year of the dragon begins February 10th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Timekeeping, music, and ornate designs combined into one. A new exhibition at London's Science Museum features a collection of mechanical clocks displayed together in the UK for the first time. Here's more on the exhibition called Clockwork Treasures from China's Forbidden City. A look inside the mechanisms of elaborate clocks collected by Chinese emperors in the 1700s. The treasures are called Jiming Zhong, which translates to bells that ring themselves. Many on display here at the Science Museum were made in Britain. This clock in particular, um, behind me, this crane clock, uh, has a, the internal clock mechanism is made in Britain, um, but it's almost certain that the outer casing and the decor decoration and the symbolism that's on the clock are also, were made in China. The internal mechanism was made by James Cox, who is um, one of the most well-known makers in Britain of Zimingzhong. Um, but the, um, James Cox's clocks uh, weren't exactly um, accurate in terms of the portrayal of Chinese culture and symbolism. They tended to be more of an imagined East, which was quite typical uh, in Britain and Europe in this time period. Um, however, this clock um, has quite a lot of symbolism on it. It's um, First of all, it's one of a pair. We only have one, but the, 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 its mate is um, at the Palace Museum in Beijing, and pears are quite auspicious um, in Chinese culture. They, uh, you know, symbolize a healthy partnership, a good marriage. Um, and then um, you also have um, the crane is holding a lingxi mushroom, which is a symbol of immortality. Um, and then on top of the pagoda, on the different, um, um, on each of the points, there's a dragon, which um, is, a, you know, obviously very symbolic in, in China, Year of the Dragon, um, but also um, symbolized uh, the emperor. Not only do they tell the time, the clocks also move and play music and predict celestial events like eclipses. On display are the inner workings of the mechanisms. Some of the first Jiminjong were brought to the Forbidden City by missionaries. Decades later, they were collected by Emperor Kangxi. The emperors um, uh, got their right to rule from, from the heavens. Astronomy was something that was uh, that they practiced uh, a lot in terms of looking up at the sky and seeing the movement of planets and stars and being and being able to predict these events using these clocks um, was really um, um, sort of vital to to their to their rule. The exhibition is on display at London's Science Museum until June 2024.
Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Auctioneers in Newport, England sold a very old lemon for a lot of money. The lemon is 285 years old and was found in a cabinet from the 18th century. It is sold for a hefty sum of almost $1,800. The cabinet was sold as well, but didn't fetch nearly as much money. The auction house thought it would be fun to include the lemon. They expected it to sell for about $50 to $80, but the offers kept going higher and higher. The lemon is brown but intact and has words carved on it from 1739. To put that into perspective, it's four years older than Thomas Jefferson, who was born in 1743. The auctioneer said the likes of this fruit won't be seen at auction again. I wonder what the words were. Fascinating. Well, if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's stories. A federal appeals court weighs in on whether refusing to wear a mask during the COVID pandemic is protected as free speech. Hear how the court decided. The House votes to not impeach the Secretary of Homeland Security by just two votes. GOP leaders say they plan to bring the vote again. We dig deep into the issue. Hamas putting forward its proposal for a ceasefire, what it requires Israel to do and how Israel will likely respond. A federal appeals court strikes down former President Trump's claim to immunity in the January 6th case. More on the decision allowing prosecution and Trump's vow to appeal. Major brands get ready to advertise this Super Bowl Sunday. A successful commercial could be worth the $7 million price tag. What's life like as a Shen Yun performer? We ask a principal dancer about his journey to the stage and his dad about sending his son into showbiz. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And we open today with some breaking news. A U.S. Marine Corps helicopter has gone missing in Southern California. The helicopter was a CH-53E Super Stallion. It was flying with five service members on board. Rescue crews are currently searching. The helicopter was flying from Creech Air Force Base in Nevada to Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in San Diego. It was reported overdue early this morning. Heavy downpours and strong winds hit Southern California throughout the night from historic storm. A federal appeals court ruled that refusing to wear a mask is not an expression of free speech. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals issued the ruling in two similar cases. Involving people who refused to wear a mask at school board meetings during the COVID-19 pandemic. The cases stem from the lawsuits against officials in Freehold and Cranford, New Jersey. The plaintiffs said they were punished for not wearing masks. The court sent one of the cases back to a lower court. In the other, it ruled that the plaintiff didn't prove she was retaliated against. The appeals court said that not wearing a mask isn't protected by the Constitution during a health emergency. They compared it to other situations where you can't disobey the law to make a point like not paying taxes or not wearing a motorcycle helmet. The plaintiffs plan to ask the Supreme Court to hear the case. And House Republicans failed yesterday in their effort to impeach Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. 
He's been accused of refusing to enforce multiple immigration laws. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the vote. The chamber erupted with Democratic applause when House Speaker Mike Johnson announced the results. On this vote, the yeas are 214 and the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. The vote took place after two hours of hard-hitting floor debate. Congressman Chip Roy accused Mayorkas of blatantly ignoring the laws of the United States. He has done so with reckless abandon. He has done so in a way that has led directly to the death of American citizens. Congresswoman Laurel Lee says the head of an executive branch agency can't be allowed to pursue policies that violate the law and endanger Americans. Secretary Mayorkas has willfully and deliberately refused to uphold the laws of the United States. He has violated his oath of office and he has breached the public trust. House Democrats united against the effort, calling the proceedings a sham. Congressman James McGovern says impeachment is a solemn act. It's not something that ought to get thrown around lightly or invoked when you disagree with someone or you don't like their policies. Congressman Glenn Ivey says impeachment should be reserved for high crimes and misdemeanors. But House Republicans have decided to abuse that responsibility for a cheap political stunt. Three Republicans joined Democrats in voting against the impeachment. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene reacting. I'm sure they'll hear from their constituents. Uh, I'm sure they're probably hearing from them already. Congressman Mike Gallagher was one of the holdouts. He wrote on X that creating a new lower standard for impeachment, one without any clear limiting principle, wouldn't secure the border or hold President Biden accountable. It would only further pry open the Pandora's box of perpetual impeachment. Another holdout was Congressman Ken Buck. I think the principle is very clear that uh, Mayorkas did not commit a high crime or misdemeanor. And Congressman Tom McClintock, who says the impeachment of Mayorkas would set a dangerous precedent. We can expect it to be leveled against every conservative Supreme Court justice, uh, every future Republican president and cabinet member the moment the Democrats take control, and there'll be nobody there to stop them because we will have been complicit. House Majority Leader Stephen Scalise was absent from the vote due to undergoing treatment for blood cancer. The House is likely to revisit plans to impeach Mayorkas at a later date. But even if Republicans are able to impeach him, he's not expected to be convicted in a Senate trial where Republican senators have been cool to the effort. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And to discuss this issue, we're joined by Simon Hankinson, a senior research fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Border Security and Immigration Center. He's also a former Foreign Service officer with the State Department. Welcome, Simon. Uh, to begin with, immigration is a top issue in the upcoming election, considering that the impeachment of Mayorkas, though it has failed, may come around again and has the potential to do so. What do you think, what kind of impact do you think an impeachment on, of Mayorkas could have on public opinion and on the upcoming election? Well, I'll be honest, I think most people have already made up their minds, um, but for those that haven't, I think shining a light on the extraordinary dereliction of duty of Secretary Mayorkas is, is a public benefit. The more you look into this, the more you read the report put out by the House Homeland Security Committee, um, the more people see what's actually happening at the border now that the media is finally covering it, I think the more they will have uh, decent information, fair information on which to judge um, their, their choice in the next election. 
And the Senate's border deal has received praise from some Republicans and even the broader the Border Patrol Union. Where do you stand on its potential to rein in the chaos at the border? Uh, it absolutely won't rein in the chaos. It's it simply doesn't fix the problem. Um, if if you troll all the way through the hundreds of pages and look at all the fixes, it boils down to one step forward and about ten steps back. That's not to say that every single part of it is bad, um, but Taken all together, this does not stop people coming in and claiming asylum fraudulently. It does not stop the administration from paroling people illegally. It does not stop them from catching people and just releasing them into American communities. And so effectively, it would make uh, almost no difference and it would lock into law policies that this administration has um, carried out that are, uh, that are illegal, if not completely immoral. And how, where do you, how do you think voters stand on Biden's claim that his hands are tied unless this particular bill passes? You know, it reminds me of something uh, uh, President Biden said before he was elected on uh, Charlemagne the God's show about, you know, if, if you don't vote for me, then uh, anyway, I, I think at this point, if you believe uh, anything that President Biden says uh, about the border and about having any intention to control mass illegal immigration, you really haven't been paying attention. So I doubt very much whether he's going to convince a lot of people that uh, all of a sudden he's had a change of heart and that this uh, chaos is the fault of Republicans. Right. I just want to look now. Elon Musk has raised concern about illegal immigrants having the potential to vote in some states where voter ID laws are not in place. And that's popularized the issue, especially among uh, some conservatives. What impact, if any, do you think that the influx of border crossers could have on the election on that front? You know, does, does Elon Musk have a point here? He absolutely has a point. I mean, the long-term impact is that the census doesn't distinguish between legal and illegal uh, residents. So when you have a large number of illegal immigrants pouring into certain areas that tend to be uh, largely uh, left-leaning areas, you're going to increase their congressional representation, which obviously is good for the Democrats and, and bad for the Republicans. But in the short term, um, I've seen better election security in Africa and Asia in countries that are not developed at all than, than we have in some U.S. states. It is not unreasonable to expect people to have identification that shows that they are American citizens before they vote. It is not unreasonable to expect people to show up and vote in person if they are able to do so. And so we have uh, states that really need to get their house in order to ensure election integrity, which is not a partisan thing, but it's, uh, it's for both sides. Now, what a look at organized crime, which we're seeing in New York City and in other areas. Is it an inevitable consequence, do you think, of mass illegal immigration where you know, these people don't have the ability to learn it, earn an, a living legitimately, so they may be in some ways forced into that kind of situation. Uh, I would reject the argument that just because you're poor means you turn criminal. There's an awful lot of poor, hardworking people in the United States and unemployed people and people on welfare who've never committed a crime in their lives. Uh, the bigger problem is that men commit more crime than women on average. Younger people commit more crime than older people on average. And so who are we letting in? We're letting in a large number of young men who we know absolutely nothing about, some of whom will have criminal records in their home countries that we can't search. And if you look at who's being arrested in New York City and other places for the kind of street crime and organized crime that you're seeing, many of them have ties to gangs back home and are coming over here with the express purpose of carrying out crime. We've seen this happen from Colombians before and Venezuelans, and it will only get worse. 
All right, that's all we have time for. Simon Hankinson, Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Border Security and Immigration Center. Really appreciate your time. Anytime. Turning now to the Israel-Hamas war. Hamas has responded to Israel's hostage and ceasefire proposal. The terrorist group proposes a three-phase ceasefire plan that will last 135 days. In their plan, each phase of the ceasefire would last 45 days. By the end, Israel would have to withdraw all its troops from Gaza and agree to an end of the war. Hamas would release all remaining hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. Israeli sources told media outlets there is no way that Israel would accept the Hamas proposal. Israel has repeatedly said it will not withdraw from Gaza until they achieve the goals of the war and completely eliminate Hamas. The proposal came out while Secretary of State Antony Blinken is visiting Israel and meeting with top Israeli leaders. We now have a response from Hamas to the proposal that was put on the table. The way forward, we're looking at it intensely, as is, I know, the government of Israel. And there is a lot of work to be done, but we are very much focused on doing that work. And hopefully being able to uh, resume the release of hostages that were interrupted so many months ago. Blinken also met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem. They discussed the hostage and ceasefire proposal. Blinken emphasized the need to free the hostages and also to deliver humanitarian aid to Gaza. The Secretary of State is on his fifth visit to the Middle East since the war broke out. He's trying to advance the ceasefire talks while pushing for a larger post-war settlement. And on Capitol Hill, families of hostages taken by Hamas joined American lawmakers and Israeli parliament members at a press conference. They're demanding the release of their loved ones. We stand here united across party lines and across countries for one cause, and that cause is to bring our hostages home. These families live in agony every single day. Lawmakers called on Arab nations to support their demand for hostages release. During its October 7th attack, Hamas kidnapped over 230 Israelis and other foreign nationals, including Americans. The terrorists have released only some in exchange for Palestinian prisoners and a pause in fighting. An unknown number of remaining hostages are believed to have died in captivity. The event was hosted by Senator Joni Ernst and Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Senator John Fetterman criticized ceasefire protesters after taking the podium. To anyone that is protesting or demanding for a ceasefire, let's be honest here. Why aren't you protesting to bring them all home right now? Why aren't you demanding that Hamas surrenders as well as well too? Bring all of these people back home now and this and stop pretending that this is some kind of equivalence here now. This is like, bring them back. A group of Senate Republicans yesterday called for the resignation of Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. They're expressing frustration with his leadership amid the dead bipartisan border bill. Senator Ted Cruz attended a press conference with six other Republican senators. He expressed frustration with negotiations over the bill. When asked by reporters whether it's time for McConnell to go, Cruz replied, I think it is. Cruz added that he and the senators who joined him also supported the leadership challenge to McConnell after the 2022 midterms. Those are Senators Rick Scott, Mike Lee, Ron Johnson, 
J.D. Vance, Roger Marshall, and Eric Schmidt. Up next, three U.S. presidents to meet in New York City next month. How former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama getting involved in President Biden's re-election campaign. And the city of Denver reportedly following through on an announcement to cut services for illegal immigrants. The latest changes in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. A federal appeals court has ruled former President Trump can face trial for his alleged role in the January 6th breach of the Capitol. The unanimous decision to reject Trump's claim to presidential immunity is paused until Monday to give time for appeal. Trump argues he acted in his official capacity to protect election integrity and should be shielded from criminal liability. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the ruling. A three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously rejected Trump's claim to presidential immunity Tuesday. The panel wrote it cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. The court wrote former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant and concluded any executive immunity that may have protected him as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. Trump's attorneys argue the Constitution Impeachment Judgment Clause indicates Congress held responsibility for trying a president, and that criminal prosecution could only take place after Congress had impeached and convicted a president. The appeals court disagreed, writing the framers knew how to explicitly grant criminal immunity in the Constitution, as they did to legislators in the Speech or Debate Clause, yet they chose not to include a similar provision granting immunity to the president. The judges ruled impeachments cannot be equivalent to criminal prosecutions, rejecting a double jeopardy argument. The court also found Trump is not immune from criminal prosecution under the separation of powers clause. The panel gave Trump until Monday to file an emergency stay request with the Supreme Court. Trump's team vowed to appeal. He can go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court or can ask the entire appellate court to reconsider the ruling. Trump on Truth Social after the decision posted, a president must have full immunity in order to properly function. If the High Court declines to take up the appeal, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin would be able to restart trial proceedings. If the court accepts Trump's request, any timetable it sets will decide any further delays. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The International Union of Police Associations is endorsing former President Trump. The group praised Trump's unmatched support for law enforcement while criticizing Democrats for being soft on crime. IUPA President Sam Cabral said yesterday Trump's policies and actions were focused on improving safety in communities, whereas some Democratic policies that support defunding police and reduce accountability for criminal behavior have resulted in rampant crime. Trump supporters now hope America's largest police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, will soon follow with its own endorsement. The FOP and the National Association of Police Officers both endorsed Trump in 2020. Three U.S. presidents are set to speak in New York City this next month. President Biden is planning to host a campaign fundraiser alongside former presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton. Obama confirmed the news on X, writing, Folks, I'll be in New York City on March 28th to support President Biden. Clinton and Biden both commented under the post, confirming their attendance. They also share this event link on the site. One individual could win the chance to meet the three presidents and get photos with them. It's not clear yet at which venue the event will take place. 
Should New York City keep its status as a sanctuary city? Mayor Eric Adams says yes, but suggests exemptions should be made in some instances. On Tuesday, Adams said that being a sanctuary city is part of the origin of all New Yorkers. He explained that everyone in the city came from some level of immigration. But he added that illegal immigrants who abuse the city's welcoming nature need to be dealt with on a federal level. Just a day earlier on Monday, Adams said that illegal immigrants who are found guilty of crimes should be deported. Many have been calling to overturn the Big Apple's status as a sanctuary city in recent days. That's after a mob of illegal immigrants allegedly attacked two police officers in Times Square. Denver, meanwhile, reportedly started ejecting illegal immigrants from its city shelters. In January, Denver announced it would reinstate a policy limiting the days immigrants can stay in state-provided rooms. That's to deal with the growing number of people arriving in the city. Multiple officials have been advocating for more federal aid in recent weeks. That includes the mayor of Denver and both of Colorado's Democratic U.S. Senators. Fox News now reports that 800 immigrant families will be removed from city shelters. 140 were removed on Monday. The rest will be asked to leave over the next few weeks. And in Panama, migrants keep crossing a jungle area called the Darien Gap. Crossing the gap is extremely difficult and dangerous. Many are robbed, raped, or killed trying to get to the other side of the jungle. New numbers now show that almost 40,000 migrants have crossed the gap so far this year. That's according to Panama's National Migration Service. Last year, around 25,000 crossed the Darien Gap during January. And Baltimore, Baltimore's former top prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, was found guilty in federal court yesterday for making a false statement on a mortgage application that adds to two perjury convictions three months ago. The jury in Mosby's latest trial acquitted her of a second count of falsifying a mortgage application in the purchase of a Florida home. Mosby was elected in 2014. She became the youngest top prosecutor of any major U.S. city. She made headlines in 2015 by charging police officers for the death of Freddie Gray while in police custody. The Democrat Mosby lost her bid for a third term after she was indicted on federal charges in January 2022. And federal prosecutors charged 70 current and former employees of the New York City Housing Authority yesterday with taking bribes. The U.S. attorney in Manhattan called it the largest single-day bribery takedown in Justice Department history. 66 of them are charged with soliciting and receiving bribes, as well as extortion as a government worker, which carries a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Some of the accused also face conspiracy charges. The complaint says defendants demanded cash from contractors before they would authorize a contract or sign off on a completed job. They're accused of accepting over $2 million in bribes from about 100 different buildings. One of the wettest storms in Southern California history has unleashed nearly 400 mudslides in the Los Angeles area. That's after dumping more than half the amount of rainfall the city typically gets in a season in just two days. Some areas around Los Angeles reported almost a foot of rain falling in three days. Officials are telling people not to drive through floodwaters. In some parts of Southern California, evacuation orders are in place. In addition to California, Nevada and Arizona could also see flooding. California Highway Patrol released video on Tuesday of a washed-out road nearly destroyed by the floods in the Mojave Desert. Torrential downpours sweeping Southern California left flooded streets, mudslides and debris on Tuesday. Footage from Hesperia showed raging floodwaters rushing through Pecan Avenue. 
Meanwhile, in San Diego, some vehicles were still submerged as cleaning efforts continued. An intense rainfall caused a cliff to a road right outside a group of four apartment buildings. Officials evacuated more than 45 people in Isla Vista. A California first responder re rescued two puppies found abandoned in the rain on the side of a road in Fresno County. Coming up, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is putting pressure on the World Bank not to lend money to Beijing. How has the institution fueled China's global role? A two-hour drive could take more than one day. Thousands of holiday travelers stranded in a blizzard in China. More on how they've survi survived without water, heat, or aid. We'll have the details when we return. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has agreed to testify at a House hearing later this month. He'll answer questions on why he kept his recent hospitalization secret from top national security officials. Austin is set to appear before the House Armed Services Committee on February 29th. The Pentagon chief has come under fire for not immediately informing top officials about his hospitalization and cancer diagnosis. Austin was admitted to the hospital on January 1st but didn't tell the White House until the 4th. He also didn't inform President Biden of his cancer diagnosis until January 9th, even though he received it in December. The hearing is part of an ongoing inquiry into that episode. Austin last week apologized for mishandling communication of his cancer treatment. He acknowledged the mistake and said he takes full responsibility. And a tough question for Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. At a hearing Tuesday, a lawmaker questioned Yellen if she would commit to increasing the capital of the World Bank conditional on graduating China from World Bank assistance and not allowing Beijing to increase their voting power. Let me say we are strongly opposed to World Bank lending to China. We have pushed the World Bank and other MDBs to reduce and eliminate their lending volume to China. MDB refers to the multi multilateral development banks. They provide financial support to developing countries. The World Bank lends money to China because it's considered a developing country, even though it's the world's second largest economy. The organization has approved over $9 billion in projects to China since 2016. China facing heavy snowfall in the midst of the Chinese New Year travel rush. How are some travelers dealing with the extreme winter weather ahead of the holiday? Let's zoom in. Parts of China at a standstill during one of the most treasured times of year. Cars are stuck. Some highways look like parking lots. There is such desperation. People are doing whatever they can to chip away the ice-covered pavement. It's all part of a winter blast hitting as hundreds of millions of travelers head home for the Lunar New Year holiday. Tong Zetao is in the middle of it. This journey has been too long, and it is indeed a torture. He told me his six-hour drive is now taking more than 24 hours. The snow has been falling since the day before yesterday. It has melted a little, but it then turned into ice, so the road is very wet and slippery. He is one of many on a treacherous journey that has left some travelers stranded without food and water. Who needs warm water, this little girl asks as she goes car to car with her mother. Other villagers offer noodles and porridge from over the fence. 
It's not any easier if you're taking the train. It's packed inside the station in central China as passengers deal with delays. Much of this mess, a flashback to 2008 when blizzards left 24 people dead and hundreds of thousands of people stranded. Yet there's a spirit of determination to make it home. No matter what, we always head home for the Spring Festival. It is a Chinese tradition. A tradition that could be hindered by unforgiving forces of nature. And in more China news, Chinese nationals crossing the U.S. border say they use TikTok to find gaps in fences. That's as illegal Chinese crossings hit a record high. More details coming tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on NCD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. And staying in, turning to Europe, we have some short headlines from Germany, Switzerland and other countries. Swedish prosecutors today said they will drop their investigation into the explosions on the Nord Stream gas pipelines. They found that Swedish jurisdiction does not apply and the investigation should be closed. Sweden is now handing evidence over to German investigators. A Kremlin spokesperson said today that Russia was denied access to information about the investigation in the past. Moscow will now watch how Germany conducts the investigation and make decisions accordingly. French President Emmanuel Macron today paid tribute to the victims of the October 7th terrorist attacks by Hamas. 42 French and Franco-Israeli citizens died during the attack on Israel. Macron attended a somber ceremony in the heart of Paris. He vowed to fight anti-Semitism in all its forms, in France and abroad. Anti-Semitic violence has increased in many countries after the October 7th attacks. An international investigation into Albanian mafia. Police in Ecuador and Spain have arrested at least 30 people in simultaneous operations. Prosecutors from both countries carried out almost 60 raids related to alleged money laundering and drug trafficking. The money seized is worth around half a million dollars. Prosecutors also found firearms, seized property and vehicles. Germans enduring yet another day of transportation strikes. Ground staff at Lufthansa walked out at major airports today to raise pressure and wage talks. The airline said some 100,000 passengers will be affected by the walkout. The strike is due to run for more than 24 hours. The Verdi Union has targeted Frankfurt and Munich airports. Lufthansa said only 10 to 20 percent of flights will now operate at those locations. Berlin, Hamburg and Dusseldorf have also seen strike action. Verdi wants a wage rise of over 12 percent for around 25,000 workers. The union also wants a one-time payment of over $3,000 to offset inflation. Today's strike is the latest to hit Germany in recent months. A wave of industrial action has disrupted air travel, railways and public transport. A Swedish university lost research samples that had been collected over multiple decades. The Guardian reports that the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm stored samples and tanks cooled with liquid nitrogen. The tanks operate at minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. The liquid nitrogen supply was interrupted around Christmas, leading to the destruction of samples from multiple institutions. The Karolinska Institute is a medical university and the location of the Nobel Assembly, which selects the winners for the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Coming up, major brands get ready to advertise this Super Bowl Sunday. Find out what makes for a successful commercial and how much a 30-second advertisement costs. What's life like as a Shen Yun performer? We ask a principal dancer about his journey to the stage and his dad about sending his son into showbiz.
Welcome back. Football fans are getting ready for the San Francisco 49ers to take on the Kansas City Chiefs at Super Bowl 58 this Sunday. But the game is also an opportunity for major brands to score big with their commercials. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. The Super Bowl offers one of the largest audiences of the year for advertisers. John Evans is chief customer officer at System One, a company that predicts an ad's impact. And I think there's no better stage to put your brand on than the Super Bowl. And the other thing is, if you're a Super Bowl advertiser, that's, that's sending out a really powerful message to your audience that actually you're a big brand and you're one that they should listen to. And the opportunity to leverage a Super Bowl spot with your customers and your audience is enormous. The spots on CBS, which will broadcast the game, sold out in November. Celebrities are a big part of the show every year. Soccer star Lionel Messi plays for Michelob Ultra this Sunday. Mr. Messi! Top at the moment, the best, the best scoring ad at the moment, is Michelob Ultra. And they've got Lionel Messi in their ad, which I think is really quite funny because you've got a soccer player advertising on a football night. So that's quite entertaining. But so far, they're in the lead. They've got 4.8 stars out of five. Evans says the way to make the most of having a celebrity ad is having their image tell a story about the brand. Chris Jenner is in the Oreo spot, and Jason Momoa sings for T-Mobile. Doritos are the best performing Super Bowl advertiser we've ever had in our database, so every year they always score very highly. Another good one is T-Mobile. T-Mobile, again, they always score very highly. Um, and after that, I'd say um, Pringles and M&Ms. Evans says using humor and sticking to proven ways in advertising is also a safe bet. So the great thing, I think, this year, as many years, it's funny, it's entertaining, there's lots of celebrity, everybody is involved, and there's, there's a really big all-star cast. So I think sometimes, actually, not changing the winning formula is often the best thing you can do. More than 115 million people watched last year's Super Bowl game, an all-time viewership record. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Keeping a strong and healthy marriage is an endeavor of strength, commitment, and conscious effort. Here's Gina Marie from Strong Mind and Body with some tips. A successful marriage is often considered one of life's greatest achievements. However, it requires a conscious effort from both partners. Many enter into marriage with romantic ideals, but then real life takes over. On top of that, relationships are susceptible to the strains of career demands digital distractions, fleeting connections, and fast-paced lifestyles. Lee Wilson, also known as Coach Lee, shared some timeless wisdom and practical advice in a recent interview. Here are the top 15 tips for maintaining a blissful, enduring marriage. Number one, make a conscious choice to prioritize each other above all else. Number two, make your commitment to each other intentional and envision your future as intertwined. Number three, adopt the mindset of I'm with you and you're with me. The other things are all side items. Number four, place your spouse at the forefront of your life, making their happiness and well-being a top priority. Number five, check in regularly with your partner. Ask them about their day and actively listen to the concerns. Number six, regularly affirm your commitment to each other both verbally and through your actions. Number seven, commit to spending quality time together, weekly and larger trips or getaways on a yearly basis. Number eight, try new activities together as a couple, like taking up a new hobby, traveling to new places, or exploring shared interests. Number nine, couples should view themselves as teammates, working towards shared goals and aspirations. 
Number 10, couples should strive to keep their relationships simple. This means focusing on the core values and priorities. Number 11, physical intimacy is a vital component of a thriving marriage. It can strengthen the emotional bond between partners. Number 12, balance talking about issues with taking action and never brush issues under the carpet no matter how small they seem. Number 13, understand each other's perspectives regarding social media usage. This is crucial as not everyone approaches it the same way. Number 14, every marriage encounters conflicts at some point. The key to a long-lasting happy marriage lies in how couples handle these conflicts constructively. And number 15, when issues arise, take the time to listen actively, empathize and seek understanding. Avoid bottling up emotions or resorting to criticism. Encourage open dialogue and always strive to find a common ground. So there you have it, 15 tips to improve your marriage. People are talking about it again because it's time. We've seen the ads. Shen Yun Performing Arts is on tour. NTD's Evelyn Lee sat down with two very special guests this morning. Principal dancer Jesse Browdy, who found his calling on stage, and his dad, Levi Browdy, who then found his calling in a new career as well. Let's take a look. Because you grew up in the U.S., you were identifying with American culture, you played baseball. What was that kind of path that you took that you suddenly got interested in traditional Chinese uh, dance? Um, okay, so my parents found a school uh, located in Middletown, New York, that also taught the, the same kind of dance form as uh, what Shen Yun was doing on stage. And at the time, I had a lot of, uh, f I had a couple friends in the dance program. And so it was more peer pressure that, that, <laughs> that uh, it, was, it was because of more of peer pressure that I chose to enroll in the dance program because I kind of just wanted to be with my friends. Um, it was a pretty clear turning point for me, I guess. Uh, it was the spring of 2018 uh, and then my dad, or actually the school, took us to see the Shenyun performance that year. It was that year that I kind of saw the, not only the passion of the dancers on stage, but kind of the impact they had on the whole audience. And then coming out of that show, I was, I kind of made up my mind that I wanted to do this in the future and nobody could stop me from that. And it was mainly because I kind of wanted to inspire people the way I was inspired that night when I watched Shen Yun. That's wonderful. And can you tell me a little bit more about how can we imagine a day for you to be like, because you're doing dance training to be a professional dancer, and then you have all the schoolwork on top. What does this look like for you in a day? So it leads to pretty much jam-packed days almost every single day. But uh, in the morning is three hours of dance training, be it mm -hmm. rehearsal or uh, like taking bar and stuff like that. Um, there are a lot of dancers that also wake up earlier to do some extra training before like, before the rehearsals begin in the morning. We call this Zaogong. And then after, after lunch in, uh, in the afternoon, uh, that's when we do our academic studies where we learn everything from you know, normal subjects you would see in school like mathematics, science, history. We also learn uh, subjects that, are, that have, that kind of we need on stage like Chinese, Chinese culture, uh, Chinese mm. civilization, stuff like that. And then at night is just more training, more rehearsing. Tell me more about, because sometimes if you're trying to grasp a culture, right, because culture is as something so intangible, a lot of it is just kind of being left unsaid, it's just there. So tell me more about how you really um, 
figure that out, grasping the essence of a culture and knowing what, what the essence is? Trying to first portray a character that lived 3,000 years ago mm. and then make the audience believe that they're actually in a scene that happened 3,000 years ago. Um, I feel like ultimately it comes down to the values that you want to portray. Like for example, last year I portrayed a general, uh, Zhao Yun. He's very famous for his bravery and his loyalty and his humility. And I feel like, like aside from reading the history of it, aside from knowing the history, um, aside, aside from watching like TV shows and reading books on this character, I feel like I tried to almost change my behavior or like try to like incorporate these values into my daily life a little bit more. I tried to be more humble. I tried to actually like respect my superiors a little bit more. Um, it's kind of hard, hard to put into words, but um, I guess what helps me um, portray these values on stage is to actually kind of live these values in real life. Mm -hmm. You put a lot of work into all this. You studied day in, day out, hours for dance, and then of course historically. And then how did it feel like when you actually made it onto the big stage? So I remember the first time uh, the curtain opened to see my first like live audience and I kind of panicked. <laughs> it was like all that preparation for like a split second went into some remote corner of my brain. I was like, wow, what's going on? Um, but I guess the more I kind of performed, the more I was able to take what's in my heart and sort of share it with the audience mm. through nonverbal movement. And I guess what that's kind of the beauty of dance is it it kind of transcends the, value, the, the barriers of language. And you can use dance to kind of inspire people, to enlighten people, to mm. educate people. By being part of the show, what is it that you would like to give the audience after, you know, after a night out watching Shen Yun? What is it that you hope they would take away? Honestly, it's kind of what I took away when I saw Shen Yun that spring in 2018 was just inspire them to be better people. And I feel like this is kind of the ultimate purpose of mm -hmm. art, is to, again, kind of to inspire people to be better. What would you say is the biggest change in him, seeing him growing up now, ever since you sent him to the school? No, no, that's me. Well, he's a lot taller <laughs> no, now. He's a lot taller now. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of, I don't know if there's one big thing, there's a lot of little things. You know, he has this t-shirt he sometimes wears that says, no, no bad days. <laughs> and I love that. I, mean, it's I sort aspire of, to that. Yeah, it, it sort of encapsulates a spirit that Jesse always kind of had. I mean, he always had this mm. sort of gutsiness to him that I never had at his age when he was a young kid, but it really flourished when he got to Feitian and started with Shen Yun. And that this whole spirit of like, if you're doing great in the day and everything's going well, be productive. If everything's going horribly, learn from it. Fortitude, you know, add some fortitude to your willpower power through it. The idea that he embraces those principles and lives them. Mm. I mean, it's, it's these kind of things. That's one example. There's many of them. But it's those kind of things that I think really sort of not only make me proud, but I, I learned from it as well. As a parent, look, I, I, myself, actually my whole family, I come from a very educated family. Education has always been a very big deal in my family. And I'd always thought, and that's not just in the classroom. It's sort of like, how do you raise children not to live the life you want, but to give them all the tools to live the life that they want with a reasonably 
strong moral compass and confidence and poise. I mean, that's a, that's a difficult puzzle to sort of piece together, especially in the world today. And honestly, I spent a lot of sleepless nights and worries about how to do that properly, you know, as the boys were growing older and older and older. And I think um, when we found Feitian and I saw the mission of Feitian, that, that they were going to that they would shape young artists to be not only world-class artists, but I would say world-class people, people who, who, who learn the value of putting others before themselves, learn the value of aspiring to be more compassionate and things of this nature. I mean, that was really an aha moment for me, a major relief. <laughs> the search was over. And I think I'm most proud to just see that he's been able to have this opportunity to go through that, that, the, the college, to be part of Shen Yun and be part of this, because that's what I always wished, is he would find something like that. So what kind of role would you say now that Shen Yun has in your life? It gave me a, it gave me a purpose. Like before, I, I didn't really know what I was, where I was going to go in life, but I guess what Shen Yun did for me was it gave me a purpose in life, not just like superficially, like career-wise, it also gave me kind of like a, a moral standard that I have to meet every single day and kind of be the best person, best artist that I can be. What we just watched is only a clip of the full interview. For the full version, visit ntd.com. In the interview, Levi Browdy explains why he chose to send his son to showbiz and why he trusts Jesse's future to this dance company. Shen Yun Performing Arts is on a worldwide tour with many shows in the U.S. If you want to learn more about the premier classical Chinese dance company, head to shenyun.com. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.